Well, I wonder what um, you think God most wants to see in your life if you're a Christian here this morning. What does God most want to see in your life? Perhaps your first answer, I think it's the answer that would spring to most of our minds, is he wants, us to, uh, wants to help me to overcome my sins. And uh, that's certainly true. God certainly wants to do that. But our continuing sins actually, says the Bible, are, are, are just a surface manifestation of deeper things in our hearts. So perhaps we should go a little bit deeper when we're asking this question, what does God want to do most in our lives? Perhaps we should say something like, God wants to create in us the fruit of the Spirit. Give us lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control. But there's a deeper question. How does God's Spirit produce those things? Is is it just a pure creative miracle that uh, God uh, does out of nowhere? Or is there something else that actually God does in our hearts by his Spirit in order to produce that fruit? Is there a tree, in other words, that he grows? that issues in the fruit. If there is that tree, that life in our heart that uh, produces the fruit of the Spirit, what is the essence of that? What at its deepest level does God want to do in us? Well, I think the story of Joseph says that there is something even deeper than the fruit of the Spirit God wants to create in us. And um, uh, Genesis chapter 45 reveals that. God's great project in Joseph's life, God's main purpose in your life, if you are a Christian here this morning, is to teach you to trust him. To trust that he's in control and to trust that his purposes for you are good. That's actually what God did began in us when he first made us Christians. He called us to trust Christ's death on the cross that it was sufficient to pay for all of our sins so that we would entrust ourselves to him in that way, simply asking for God's forgiveness and trusting that God promised to give us. And that, uh, give that to us. And God actually um, wants to see that trust grow in our heart. That is his central concern for us. Everything else in our lives will follow on if we learn to trust. And if you're not, not a Christian here this morning, then um, uh, listen in. 
Listen in to how God deals with believers. There's no promise, uh, unfortunately, in the story of uh, Joseph for how he deals with those who are not followers of himself. But listen in. See how God deals with his people and let God work in your heart. The whole story of uh, Joseph has been leading to this great climax in Genesis chapter 45. Um, Joseph is reconciled to his brothers, remember after he'd been sold into slavery by by them and, and had suffered for years in Egypt, 22 years in fact, he's finally reconciled to his brothers and he tells them, he has learned this simple and yet very profound truth. God is in control. That is the key thing that Joseph says he has learned. Um, You might expect when finally he reveals himself to his brothers, we saw uh, two weeks ago the long and drawn out saga um, that led to him uh, finally revealing himself to his brothers. You might expect that at that moment he would be filled with rage. But he's not. And he explains the reason why he's not. Three times. When you hear something three times in the Bible, take it very, very seriously. Did you notice verse uh, 5, first of all? Do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great uh, deliverance. Verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. God sent me. God sent me. It was not you who sent me, but God, he says. This is, this is quite extraordinary in the story of Joseph. You know, when we read Genesis, uh, Genesis 37, there were the brothers plotting against Joseph and, um, uh, uh, and selling him into slavery. And we noted there, in that chapter, that God is not mentioned. God is absent in one sense, but he's not. He's there. Indeed, uh, Joseph says with mature understanding, there is a sense in which the brothers weren't the agent of Joseph's downfall at all. God sent him. It wasn't that God just saw what the brothers were doing, um, doing this horrible thing, and uh, decided after the fact to try and tidy it up and make the best of a, of a difficult uh, event that had happened in Joseph's life. God was more proactive than that says Joseph, he uses the strongest possible language. God sent me ahead of you to Egypt. How does that work? Were the brothers then, uh, should we read them as innocent puppets in God's hands because God was really orchestrating the the whole thing? Well, the Bible says uh, whenever this subject comes up, and it comes up many times, the Bible always says an emphatic no to that. We human beings are responsible for our sins. We will have to face God's judgment 
uh, on the last day as responsible agents. But, it says, God is still sovereign. He is, he is still the Lord. He stands above and behind all actions, all events, including the evil ones, and he uses them for the good of his people. God is not responsible for the sinfulness of our sin. But our sins are not beyond his control. Joseph uses the strongest possible language to, uh, um, to impress that upon the brothers. God sent me. Now, you might be confused by this truth. And uh, in many ways there are mysteries about how we can reconcile both our responsibility for our actions, our bad actions, and the, the statements that come up in Scripture that still God was in control, still God was working out his good purposes. But this is not an isolated incident of that. The Bible says it again and again and again without the tiniest bit of embarrassment. It may struggle for uh, um, worry philosophers who get themselves tied up in their uh, their, their um, uh, dry logic, but it doesn't trouble those who know God. Perhaps the classic place where this is mentioned, just to show you where one other place is in Acts chapter four. Turn to it if you like, or just listen as I explain it. The disciples in Acts chapter 4 um, are praying to God and recalling the events surrounding Jesus' death. And they say in chapter 4 verse 27, Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles... All the people of Israel are responsible agents. They are conspiring to do, in fact, the greatest evil imaginable. They are conspiring to, to kill the Son of God. But then in the very next verse of the uh, disciples say this, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The cross was both the central good work of God in history. Christ died for our sin. And it was the central act of evil in history. The world conspired to kill Jesus, the Son of God. Were the actions of Herod and Pontius Pilate, etc., wicked? Yes. Will they face judgment for it? Yes. Was evil abroad on that terrible day? Yes. Was it God's good and perfect plan to do good for innumerable people? Emphatically, yes. Both are true. That doesn't make any sense, I hear you say. It just didn't work. Well, in particular, how can human beings be held responsible for an action if in fact God, it's all part of God's good plan? 
How can that be fair? Well, let me just give you one uh, uh, partial answer. All the answers the Bible gives are in the end partial. They are, they are indicators. They are not the uh, final knockdown arg- argument. But one partial answer is, uh, is an answer that Joseph gives to that conundrum in, in chapter 50, verse 20. Just turn with it to me, it's on page 57. After Jacob has died, Joseph comes back, actually, to discussing this theme of God's control over all of his life and having sent him to Egypt. And he explains it this way in chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There are two intentions here. The intention of the brothers was to harm Joseph. And because God judges primarily according to our hearts, according to our inner intentions, and because the brothers' intentions are sinful, God absolutely appropriately holds them accountable for that intention of theirs. But behind and above that action stands the intention of God. The intention of God is to do good. God intended it for good. That is how God governs his world. We do not actually, in the end, have the absolute power to thwart God. Indeed, it is vitally important, centrally important for us that we know that and we understand that as Christians. Classic statement of God's overall good purposes in our lives, in the grand plan and in every detail, is found in Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that there is nothing that is, that is evil or sinful that will touch us at all. It means that over and above the evil and sin that touches us is the good purpose of God. The good intention of God to do us good. All things good and bad are woven together by God for the good of those who who love him. And this is what Joseph had learned. God is in control. God is working good. How did he learn it? He learned it through trials, didn't he? 
we couldn't have missed that. Let's just, just, let's just pr- replay Joseph's life uh, in our minds for a moment. Remember that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 17-year-old young man, his father's favourite, destined for greatness. That, those dreams of sheaves and stars bowing down to him just conferred it. God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. And then disaster happened. Uh, you know, when he, was in, when he was in that pit waiting for his brothers to murder him, I wonder what he thought of God's promises. When he was led in chains down to Egypt, I wonder what he thought. When he was, when he was paraded in the slave market and brought by, bought by Potiphar, I wonder what he thought. You know, perhaps God did actually graciously minister to him in his heart and give him confidence that God was still in control. But we have no indication of it in the, in the story. Perhaps, frankly, he didn't. Perhaps at that moment Joseph laughed at the idea that God had good purposes for him. But he did. When Joseph got promoted in Potiphar's household, you can imagine, can't you, that sort of light at the end of the tunnel seems to be dawning. Perhaps this is how he's going to rise to prominence. He's going to uh, uh, become important in Potiphar's house. He's going to become uh, able to buy his freedom and then he'll return home. Perhaps that's what God is, is, is doing. But then comes this test, this Potiphar's wife. She demands that he uh, sleep with her. And he has an instant dilemma. And we have to be honest, the easiest path way would be to comply, wouldn't it? And even imagine how with Potiphar's wife now as his ally, and Potiphar's wife sharing a guilty secret so that he has some power over her, he might, he might even improve his chances of getting to that place of glory. Having Potiphar's wife as his enemy didn't bear thinking about. But Joseph, by this time in his life, has learned enough not to dishonour God in that way. Perhaps he thought that this newfound commitment to righteousness that he has, perhaps he thought that that would protect him. So he's bold in chapter 39, saying, how could I sin against God? But it seemed like there was no protection, no help. If if there was one place worse in Egypt than being a slave, it was being in prison. And that's where Joseph goes. In prison... What do you think he thought of God's promises? Well, he gets another another opportunity. He has a skill, a skill in interpreting dreams. And along come this, this cupbearer and baker and he interprets their dreams accurately and he waits in hope that now, through this God-given gift, Surely he's going to be noticed. Surely God's going to demonstrate his good purposes in his life. But he is forgotten by them. God seems to be cutting off ray of hope after ray of hope after ray of hope in his life. I mean, frankly, if you were God and you wanted to teach someone that you were working in their lives to achieve good in every, uh, uh, um, uh, at every turn, would you treat them like 
God treats Joseph. Would you disappoint them time after time after time? And yet that is what God does. Because you see, in Joseph's life and in yours, he is rooting out something very deep in the human heart. There is something very deep in us which says, by my strength, with my righteousness, and with my skill, I'm going to give God a helping hand. God's made these promises to me, but he needs me. He needs my uprightness. He needs those wonderful skills that he's given me, but man, now they're mine and I'll use them. He needs my strength. And God says to Joseph, no, I don't. And you need to learn that. Young, arrogant dreamer, Joseph, God's promise is not going to come true until your soul has been shaped by suffering. Strong, righteous Joseph, resisting Potiphar's wife, there is something more God wants to do in your heart and he will do it through suffering. Skilled, dream-interpreting Joseph, those skills are not your passport to success. And only disappointment and being overlooked and left to rot in jail for a few more years is going to teach you that, Joseph. And so that's what I'm going to do for you. So that you can learn to trust. Not yourself, not your righteousness, not your skills. Me. I am the God who is in control, says God. See, that's why it's so significant. Remember a few weeks ago when uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 41, 32 that, that, that Pharaoh's double dream means that God is determined to, to fulfil the dream and he's in a hurry to do it. Because Joseph had had a double dream too. Do you remember that? And after these years of cruel disappointment, he has come to this settled, peaceful conclusion that God is determined to fulfil his promise and he's in a hurry to do it. He is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand it, as the New Testament says. If you're a Christian this, this morning... That is what God is doing in your life. That is, that is his central project in your life for the rest of your life. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to know that he is good. He wants you to stop trusting all of those things that, that, that we put our trust in and yet which are illusory. They have no power ultimately to do us good 
only the living God does. I've seen uh, amongst an older generation the fruit of that. I remember uh, when I first came here, um, Brian Hennigolf's father, Gerald Hennigolf, who was massively influential in the, in the life of this church, um, was still alive and um, I talked to him once about a difficult and long-standing pastoral issue that, uh, uh, that we had then. And um, Gerald said just one thing to me. He said, he said, I think in time God will work it out. And he was right. And there are perhaps those of us here who are at an earlier stage of maturing in that. Perhaps you are actually, you are in the throes of personal disappointment as Joseph was for many years. Well, let me say, see this and it will help you to, to go through that. God is teaching you to peacefully trust him. Yes, other people and other forces, spiritual forces of evil sometimes, intend to harm you in those disappointments. But God's intention is to do you good. God is in control and he wants to do good in your life. And there are, I'm sure, those of us here, mostly amongst the younger, younger generation, who presently see the, the world as just a, just a wide open space of opportunity. I love being with, with, with uh, people like that. But let me say to you, don't be surprised and don't fall into, into despair when disappointment hits you. God is not being gratuitously nasty. He is disciplining you as sons. He's teaching you to trust him. It is a central project of his in your life. What did Joseph learn? God is in control and doing you good. How did he learn it? He learned it because it's the only way that we can learn it through trials. What was the fruit of that? Well, that is absolutely beautiful. We can only begin to uh, examine that in um, these last chapters. But let me point out to you a couple of things by way of fruit. There's fruit for the brothers. The brothers, says Joseph, can enjoy forgiveness. There's a fascinating thing that uh, Joseph says. I, we, we read it, but we just slipped over it um, in verse 5. Now, says uh, Joseph to his brothers, do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Is that because they didn't sin? Well, no, that's not true. 
he's saying actually the bigger picture of God's overall good purposes enables them to fully enjoy the forgiveness that God offers them. Many Christians, it seems to me, don't fully enjoy the forgiveness that God offers us for a particular reason. Yes, we accept that God has forgiven us on the last day. We accept that Christ died for all of our sins and that we will not be, um, uh, we will not be condemned on the last day. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but, they, but here and now, they feel they still live with the adverse consequences of their sin. Despite the promise of forgiveness then, they beat themselves up about their sin. They lament the um, uh, damage that there is as a result of their sin. And And a certain degree of that is appropriate, but in fact, that can go too far. Because you see, when you sinned, You didn't thwart the will of God in an absolute sense. Your intention was bad, your action was bad, you needed to repent, you needed to be forgiven, but God, if you are a Christian, God never stopped having his sovereign hand on your life for your good. Even the consequences of your sin are being used by God for your good. Let me say that again. That's what the brothers learned. Even the consequences of your sin are being used by God for your good. There's a form of sorrow for sin, you see, amongst Christians, which actually is proud and faithless. It says, now I've stepped outside the will of God. Now I've muffed it. Now I've made a complete mess and poor old God, he's going to have to sort of help me stumble along with second or third or fourth or fifth best option in my life. Because my sin was so terrible, I've just messed up and I'll live with that for the rest of my life. And God laughs at that. Poor old God. So, so did I as God, he says, sort of not realise what you would do with your life, the foolish and silly things that you would do? Why is God caught by surprise? And why is God powerless as you, as you went off and did that sin? Rubbish. I, as God, am absolutely in control and I was determined, in fact, to work all things for your good and I wove that horrible error, that horrible failure of yours into my good and perfect plan for your life. You need to repent of it, but you do not need to think in your arrogance that somehow that overcame my purpose for your life. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourself, says Joseph, because God sent me uh, uh, ahead of you. Don't think that somehow you have thwarted the purposes of God, my dear brothers. As you experience forgiveness, then in fact you can enjoy the good consequences that came 
from your sin. God brought us here and saved us in Egypt. Don't think too highly of yourselves as you sin. We need to repent. But let's never think that somehow we have absolutely thwarted the purpose of God in our lives. That brothers can enjoy forgiveness. We can enjoy forgiveness. And Joseph. Joseph can offer forgiveness and genuine love. That becomes clear particularly in Genesis 50 at the end. Um, Jacob dies and the brothers have a bit of a wobbly. Perhaps Joseph's kindness was only a pretend kindness. Perhaps he couldn't bear to hurt them while his father was alive, but now dad's dead, perhaps he'll, uh, he'll wreak retribution on them. So they concoct a story about Joseph, uh, Jacob leaving a message uh, to Joseph that he should forgive them. And Joseph weeps at their foolishness and says, verse 19, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, revenge was God's prerogative, brothers. Never mind. Joseph's mature trust in God allows him to leave. Um, uh, uh, leave those things to God. He's not taking revenge. In fact, more than that, it allows him to love and care for those brothers. Um, Verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers had done Joseph great harm in one sense, and in another sense they had been powerless to do him any harm at all. Absolutely powerless. They could sell him into slavery in Egypt. They could plot to kill him. But he was impregnable. Because God intended good in his life. And you as a believer, if you are a believer here this morning, are in exactly that position. Other people, by their malevolence, may in one sense do you great harm. The devil is roaming around in this world longing to do you great harm. But you're impregnable. It may feel like you have suffered horrible consequences. But from God's perspective, you are impregnable. And from that secure place, you can love those who hurt you. You can forgive those who've hurt you. You can be generous and kind to those who've hurt you. Because what they did to you was not evil in the absolute sense. Because God used it for good. God is shaping you through those events. You are absolutely safe 
He works in all things for the good of those who love him. What a difference that would make in our lives if we really believe those things. I know they are profound. I know they are difficult to get our heads around. I know they are shocking in one sense. But scripture affirms them again and again and again. You are not the victim of evil. You are in the hands of the living God. Though others intend to harm you, God intends it for good. Let's pray. The communion table spread before us is there to help us to trust. It is there for us to renew our experience of God's forgiveness as we confess our sins. It's there for us to remember that God bought us at the cost of his own son. And he tells us this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor angel, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.